for April 28th, 2014, we've put all our skill points into podcasting on Red Pages Podcast. It is Monday, April 28th, 2014, and I am Justin, the color of water. It is still Monday the 28th. Actually, it's the 29th. Yeah. Technically. For you. For you. (laughs) And And who are you? I'm Gord. I'm the color of air. Very Um, creative. Yeah. (laughs) We're going with the theme here, right? uh, I I was going to do something completely different, but... I'm Paul, and I guess I'm the color of starfish. Okay, and we have a special guest with us here today. Uh, if you have been listening to us, you know who that special guest is, but just in case this is your first podcast, uh, either from us or ever, uh, special guest, how would you like to introduce yourself? I am Chris Avalon, and I suppose I am the color of ennui. Mm. Ooh. Mm. I feel, for me, that color I, is sort of... Say, uh, color of ennui. Uh, oh, <laughs> the God. color for me is like a, a very, very muted uh, gray tones, because I learned that word from an Edward Gorey book. <laughs> Actually, as soon as I said the word ennui, I felt like this hipster beard suddenly grow on my face, and my jeans shrank, and all my, all my shirts suddenly changed to horizontal stripes. <laughs> yeah, but you got really knowledgeable about about uh, bands that no one's ever heard of. Yes, yeah. exactly. Before they became famous. Can I? Uh, I went, is right. it too late to change my color? I'm gonna be the, no. uh, the uh, color yeah. out of space. Oh. Mm. Mm. Okay. Wow. Uh, okay. Thank you. I, I I understand your H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> reference. All right. So um, moving moving quickly tonight because we have a truncated show. Um, let's jump right into the first segment. Uh, what have we been doing this week? Some, uh, everybody pick the one or two most interesting things you've done this week from this list of the things that we've done and talk about them. I guess I'm going first because of our new order rules. Um, the so the two order. things, yeah, the new, the new podcast order. <laughs> the things that I did that, this week that were most interesting were I went to a birthday party for Shakespeare because it was his 450th birthday. And I watched uh, world-famous scholars dress up in drag and do scenes from Romeo and Juliet and other Shakespeare plays, uh, which, if you are in the study of English literature, would be very amusing because you would know who those people were. That was uh, fun for me. And the other thing I did was I visited the Philly Game Labs, which are an independent game studio funded by uh, the government, I, I guess, in downtown Philadelphia, and they are making a whole bunch of really cool stuff, and I don't want to say much more about it than that, because their, uh, I guess, lead guy will be uh, appearing on this show in a month or two. Cool. Okay. Gord, what did you want to talk about this week? I went to the beach. That was fun. Uh, it was my first time actually being at an ocean, uh, but I didn't go into the water. Maybe next time. Uh, also, Google Plus is allegedly going to die because they are moving their focuses elsewhere. And the uh, the, the, the president of that uh, 
what chapter team um, sect was uh, has moved on. So everyone, everyone, everywhere is uh, calling this the death of Google Plus. I'm not convinced. I predicted this several years ago. <laughs> Paul, how about you? Um, I started a new job today, which is super, hey, super cool. Hey, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's a big moment of my life where I get to move back in with my parents for a bit because it's way easier to commute from their place than from my own. And cheaper. I thought you were and cheaper. Your, your parents were your job. <laughs> That'd be, uh, uh, are you getting that's allowance? That's unfortunate. Uh, no, I'm not getting allowance, unfortunately. What's your curfew? <laughs> uh, my, cur- my curfew is whenever the hell I want, because I'm an adult. <laughs> yeah, you're moving, um, what, at the end of the month, right? Next month? Yeah, I, I was moving else. at the end of the month anyway, so this is just uh, accelerating plans just slightly. All right. um, another cool thing is I got to play uh, at the Magic the Gathering pre-release for Journey into Nyx this past weekend. And I did really well. I won $40 cash. I think you mean nice. Journey into Naxxramas. Yep, Journey yeah. <laughs> into Naxxramas. I killed Patchwork yep. solo. It was really hard, but uh, it was it, I did it. Uh, you should probably t- uh, tell the listeners where you got a new job, because that's the most exciting part for you, I think. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I got a new job. It is a company in Midtown, New York, called Kuma Reality Games. And they do some... Pretty interesting things, I think. Yeah, I make video get, games. Yeah, I don't get to work on any of that stuff, though. I'm working on a completely separate project. For now. Bloody for part. Now. All right. Chris, what have you done this week? Or I guess for you, you could just say uh, something interesting that has happened to you at any point in your life. Wow. Uh, that that widens the scope considerably. Uh, so I'm going to focus on this week in any way. Uh, so the two big things that happened was I was doing a lot of writing this weekend like I usually do. But in between the writing, I got to do two cool things. One was I got to play the uh, Torment Tides of Numenera build, which they'd started blocking out the areas. So I was actually able to walk through and see a lot of the quests and the conversations and the layout of the areas. It's a the area called the Bloom that George Zeitz is working on, and being able to actually play through it was really cool. Um, and then the other thing uh, was I spent the rest of the time when I wasn't writing going through all of Skybound's new comic lines. They have a whole bunch of comics beyond The Walking Dead that I hadn't really dived into, and they have a lot of great titles. They have this crazy Cthulhu Western series called manifest destiny and they had this really cool yeah it's really good i was uh, i was a little skeptical in the first few pages but then like lewis and clark go on one crazy expedition out west and the thing encounter is awesome yeah it's really it's really well done i highly recommend it okay cool um moving keeping things moving snappily forward uh let's move on to our next section the cool books section So what have you, what have you guys, or I guess what have I guys, because apparently I'm <laughs> going to go first all three times this week. Um, uh, what have I been reading? I read, uh, I, I read an entire book this week, and by read I meant listened to on tape while I was at work, uh, and that book was True Grit. Uh, wow, I, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, it was way shorter than I thought uh, a book that uh, w- has been made into a movie twice and is highly regarded would be. It was only... I don't know, a couple hours long. 
Um, I have never seen either movie, despite one of them being an Academy Award winner and the other one being a 10-time Academy Award loser. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, while I would not say it was the best book I've ever read, it was enjoyable. It was a Western. It was about a little girl who uh, her father is gunned down and she decides to go on a quest for revenge. She becomes this sort of 14-year-old female Captain Ahab. And she hires um, uh, like a the drunkard. Dude. Yeah, he, he she hires the dude basically, <laughs> who for, has managed to get himself a marshal's badge to hunt this guy down. Um, and you know it's it's a western. It's nothing new or exciting at this point in history if you're familiar with westerns. But at the time, it was you know very highly regarded, and it was read in schools. And I figured that it was something I should be familiar with. And the other book that I started this week, but I have not finished, and I will probably talk about more next week, is uh, Junkie by William S. Burroughs, which is his account huh. of what it's like to be uh, on drugs all the time, every day, for your entire life. And I will talk more about that next week when I'm further into it. Well, I'm totally making a note of that one. <laughs> cool. Yep. It's it's pretty interesting. There are some wince-inducing descriptions so far of things that happen to you when you take drugs, or when you take drugs poorly and get it wrong. Uh, or, you know, what happens when you inject yourself with air bubbles? Oh, oh, oh God. Yeah. Uh, anyway, more on that next week, uh, when we inject ourselves with air bubbles on the podcast live. Uh, Gord, Gord, what are you, what are you reading next, uh, this week? I read The God Engines, which is a short story by John Scalzi, and it is merciless. <laughs> It's very good. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, it explores some similar themes as uh, Small Gods by Terry Pratchett and um, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Uh, and uh, uh, deconstructs a lot of uh, things. I don't know. I don't want to uh, go too much into it because I like, I myself like approaching things with no information and a lot of it is uh unfolding as you read but it's very good um you should read it also and i started reading bone shaker which i thought was also a short story because it came in the same humble bundle uh but it uh it looks like it's actually a full novel and it's about seattle back in uh back when the soviet union was still a thing i think and uh and then there are zombies and that's proving to be interesting. Uh, that's it for me. How about you, Paul? I mean, um, how about you, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Paul has noted that he has not read anything this week. No, that's not, not even okay. came before. No, no. no, no I, I, no, I wrote nothing new because I have been because you wait, just have been reading Game is of that, Thrones. Is that I've been of, plowing uh, through Game of Thrones. Is that the name? Because of the I've book? got a lot of time. Oh, that would, that would be, be really. Yeah, that would be really, really uh, meta if your book was called Nothing New. I'm going to go find a book <laughs> called Nothing New or Same Old, Same Old or something to that effect. Just to screw you guys. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like that that band called Various Artists, right? Right. Or that, uh, or that restaurant that people go to for lunch called Wherever You Want to Go. Uh, I didn't I even know, know about that one. I had those lunchtime debates where everyone just sits around. They're like, we have no idea where to go. If it was a restaurant called Wherever You Want to Go, uh, it would make a yep. fortune. Mm. Yeah, and you would just get uh, the usual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
speaking of uh, of good store names, uh, not in this vein, but one that I just saw this week, um, which I thought was a, a good name and also a sad commentary on the industry of video rental stores. Uh, I discovered that in like one town over from me, there is a new video store called The Last Great Pictures Store, and it's just oh. video rentals. And I was like, oh. That is that is both a clever reference and a sad commentary. Oh, I made myself sad. Yeah. All right. So, so Chris, what were you what were you reading? I guess other than Uh, those comic books. Yeah. Well, there was the comic books. uh, I guess uh, previously in the week, uh, continuing the torment theme, I've been trying to brush up on um, uh, some older uh, Jack Vance and Gene Wolfe, and I just finished. I. I'd read I'd read uh, Missouri and the Magician a long time ago, but I didn't read any of the other Dying Earth stories. So I started uh, what I think is the second one called Kujal the Clever, and it was a lot of fun. The main character's kind of a shifty, not very bright asshole <laughs> who bum- who sort of like bumbles his way from situation to situation with just enough cunning to get himself out of a bad situation and then right in the next one. So the entire story is him going on a forced quest and then eventually making his way back to the one, the person who assigned it. And it was actually hugely entertaining. It was a pretty fast read. And I think it was largely because I just couldn't put it down, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really, really awesome. All right. All right. All right. Um, Cool. We're we're blowing through these segments, which is good. But now we get to the segment that probably will have the most talking, other than the la- the interview, which is the game segment. Dun dun dun. That's where I'll put the transition noise. That was the transition noise. Yep. There we go. <laughs> okay. This is where I'll put the transition noise. <laughs> that way, the listeners will get to hear that small snippet. So, what did I play this week? I played a game that I feel like most of this country probably played many years ago, but as a guy who did not own an Xbox for a long time and did, does not like first-person shooters, I have never played or owned a game in this series, and it is Halo 3, because it was free a couple months ago, and I decided, eh, why not? I will boot it up. So I sat down, and I uh, first I had uh, to fix my wireless Xbox controller, which the rechargeable battery had completely died. So I cracked it open with a chisel to see how it worked. Understood how they laid out the circuitry, got two AA batteries and 10 cents in nickels and assembled a makeshift (laughs) circuit. Way to go, MacGyver. Good job. (laughs) Yeah. Plugged it into the uh, back of the controller with electrical tape, and now it works perfectly. Wow. Um, So I sat down. I sat down. I I grabbed my brother, who... uh, I guess is more forgiving of first person shooters than I am. And we played through the first level. Took maybe like an hour and a half of Halo 3. And, uh, the game was way more enjoyable than I thought it was gonna be, mostly because of the ridiculous enemy barks. (laughs) (laughs) Which I, being entirely unfamiliar with the franchise, did not realize that the tone of Halo was comedic. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. but apparently it is, or I'm told that it is in part and it will get dark later. Um, the, uh, the, they set the difficulty to, but what? The grunts of the, uh, the comic release. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That they were pretty funny. Those guys they, are great. They kept shouting at me things like, you killed my brother. There's a skull, there's a, a an unlock thing that you can enable once you find it that uh, makes it so that whenever you get a headshot on a grunt, it explodes into confetti and makes, uh, one of those. Yay. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> uh, so good. That's okay. awesome. I'll have to I'll have to find that. Yeah. But yeah, we 
we both being completely unfamiliar with the game decided, well, we're good at video games. We'll set this to whatever the level uh, immediately uh, below legendary was. Well, um, heroic is the way that it's bound. Yeah, we figured it said it said in the description uh, on easy it was the game plays itself. Normal <laughs> normal was fire enough bullets and you'll win. Uh, heroic <laughs> was the way that Halo is meant to be played, and legendary was just like you will die. <laughs> yep. And we were like, well, let's let's not go for that last one. But this one said, you know, it seemed manageable uh, as people who are good at video games, but not good at Halo. I like it. So that was the the subtitles for those difficulty settings, like pretty much determine as a point of pride, which ones you have to choose. Mm. Yeah. You're like, I can't choose the easy one. I mean, like, what will my friends think? (laughs) Yeah. So the other game that I wanted to talk about is actually not one that I played, but uh, one that I am super excited for which is Dragon Age Inquisition, which we finally got a release date for, and it comes out on my birthday. So, yeah. Happy birthday. I'm, yeah, I'm going to be playing that. That's what I'm going to buy myself, probably, uh, as Dragon Age, I guess, being the, the spiritual successor to a whole bunch of other games, some of which we may end up talking about really soon, is one of my favorite games. Uh, and the new one looks like they put a lot of work into fixing the problems that Dragon Age 2 had, and I read an interview that went on for a very long time about how they were uh, working to perfect combat against dragons, which was my number one complaint about Skyrim mm. and the reason why I did not enjoy that game. So I am very excited for Dragon Age, uh, and I could think I can probably talk more about why I liked it when we start talking about uh, the games that inspired it, like, um, you know, Baldur's Gate or Neverwinter Nights or... Uh, <laughs> Planescape Torment in the next section. But that's what I played. I also played Spelunky. Gord, you know. <laughs> I, see that you, uh, I see that you have written, boy, I love Spelunky. What do I love as much as Spelunky? Nothing. Yep. Uh, I also see that I wrote uh, Dwarf Fartress. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't uh, recall writing that, but it's in the document, so it must be, uh, must be true. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's in your document. <laughs> you probably wrote it. All I, right. What else? Did you, what did you play? I played some lottery defense in StarCraft 2. Uh, more of that and it continues to be fun i played oh uh, risk of rain is a new update there's a bunch of new content uh in fact i was just talking with the skulls in halo uh there are a bunch of things scattered throughout risk of rain uh, that you can grab and once you've collected them you can enable things that modify gameplay so in halo you'll have something like iron which is uh Enemies have three times as much health or something. I forget. I forget what Iron does. But one of them is like, turns your heads-up display off, so you have to play blind. Um, and some of them are more cosmetic, and some of them are more fun. Uh, but So there are a bunch of those in Risk of Rain now. Uh, they're called Artifacts, and uh, they very significantly change the way that you have to approach the game, and I find that to be interesting. This is a game that I played a whole bunch of uh, a couple of months ago, and now it uh, is fresh again, and I like that. I, ha- I have but one question. Mm-hmm. Do they have the obligatory big head mode as a possible <laughs> artifact? <laughs> no, there's no big head mode. Uh, mm. I feel like every game should have big head mode. I mean, what, didn't even uh, even Guild Wars 2 had big head mode, right? <laughs> yeah, that was, actually, that was uh, the April Fool's thing, but uh, yeah. Uh, 
from a developer standpoint, that conversation comes up with about eight percent of the games that we make. To be honest, like uh, everyone loves big head mode so much that it, yeah, it's you'd be surprised how often that comes up. It's so good. Mm. I've heard that uh, big head mode often. Why it is? Because it's entertaining. You're like my (laughs) character has a big head right now. I'm the king lord of heads. Yep, you are the fanciest of heads. (laughs) <laughs> especially if your character has a huge head but nobody else does yeah you're oh, like yeah, you know that's, this is why I'm royalty this is why I'm the player <laughs> yep uh, I also played some paper monsters Badland Bag It Carcassonne those are all uh, Humble Bundle games paper monsters is a fun cute platformer Badland is a more forgiving flappy bird Bag It is a uh, um uh, rotate and adjust things so that they'll fit in a given amount of space without breaking anything. Uh, it's a neat little puzzly game. Carcassonne is a an implementation of the the tabletop board game Carcassonne, uh, and it is done by the same people as uh, ported um, Settlers of Catan, and it's a neat thing. I've been playing Google Sky Map. <laughs> yeah. I think Google Skynet, what? <laughs> Google, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's finally happening. All of your worst fears are coming to fruition. You know what? I told you. I told you. <laughs> you didn't believe me when I said that they were buying uh, artificial intelligence and a military robot. Oh no, I I I, I believed it, and I welcome our uh, new Google overlords. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Google Sky Map is a thing where uh, you can point your phone at the sky, and it will show you what stars you will be looking at if you are looking in that direction, and that that is a super cool thing. Huh. I read a headline today from the New York Times that was, like, from 1920, and the headline was just, stars not where we thought they would be, <laughs> but nobody panic. And I was just like, huh. <laughs> that, that headline. And now, the weather. Mm. That's, speaking of Lovecraft, that is straight out of uh, a Lovecraft novel. Yep, that was that was the joke. Uh, that was a reference to a, a more popular podcast than ours called Welcome to Night Vale. Today's uh yep. this week's Dwarf Fortress story is that uh my fortress was besieged by a horrifying bad were hedgehog. And this popped up in an alert that said uh at the end of it, after describing the were hedgehog, now you know why you fear the darkness. So I, uh, I got pretty scared and I mobilized all four of my military squads to go after this thing. Uh, and as soon as they arrived, I, I, I checked the units list to see if it was damaged in any way or, uh, how I would have to proceed and are my dudes taking so much damage that, uh, I'll have to bring in some more dwarves. Uh, but wait, 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 wait. Were they? Were did you find them that they had just been transformed into hedgehogs by the bite of the werehog? <laughs> that would be fantastic. Uh, I, that that'd be great. Uh, no, uh, not only had no one taken a scratch, but also the werehedgehog was gone. There's just no werehedgehog anymore. Uh, Turns out all they wanted was just some gold rings. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was satisfied. It was placated and it went away. Uh, I, I eventually found that my military was still attacking a creature, uh, but it wasn't a werehedgehog. It was a cave fishman, which is a person with uh, 
a human head and a human torso and fish fins. And it was caught in one of my cage traps. Uh, so I, I called my uh, dwarves off and scratched my head a little bit. And I figured out that uh, the werehedgehog had shifted back into its original form, which was a fish man, and flopped its way into one of my traps. <laughs> and then I just had this, uh, this, this, occasionally I would get a notification, oh, the fish man turned back into a werehedgehog. And I kept him in a cage until I could figure out what to do with him, which was eventually. <laughs> That's the most <laughs> impotent monster in the entire uh, world. Yep. Are monsters randomly generated? Yes. Like that? Yep. Okay. Okay, now it makes sense. Yeah, I got the uh, last game. I got some more uh, terrifying monsters. For example, this this uh, 300 foot tall spider made out of grass that shoots web everywhere uh, and uh, takes no damage from anything. Huh. And I uh, mm. ended my fortress in one swipe. Wow. <laughs> so the werehedgehog, the werehedgehog was uh, me getting off easy. Super complex game. Uh, we were talking about uh, um, bespoke, bespoke content versus procedurally generated content yeah, a few podcasts ago, and I think that Dwarf Fortress is a very, very good example of procedurally generated content done very, very right. But it's also just... Yeah. It turns unimaginable. out you need about uh, like 20 years' worth of work <laughs> in order for it to be true. Yeah, in case. it's basically unimaginably complex and uh, graphically... Uh, unparsable. But, yeah. Fantastic game. Paul, what have you been playing? Um, I played uh, mostly just Diablo 3, in which uh, my friend and friends and I decided we would go try to farm uh, a legendary sword called the Spectrum, which is a rainbow sword. Um, it's just a handle, and it just shoots out this rainbow. It's like a lightsaber. It's like a lightsaber, but it's rainbow. So um, we we got it completely accidentally, which is great. And uh, now my barbarian is double fisting rainbows and uh, spinning to win. It is pretty great. Uh, other than that, I played uh, uh, Flappy 2048, which is uh, way more forgiving than Flappy Bird and 2048. <laughs> so that yeah, was unexpected. Um, somebody commented about that game that... Uh, okay, guys, we're we're done. We've we've come up with all possible <laughs> permutations of Flappy Bird and 2048. Uh, come back next week with a new idea for a new type of game. To which I responded, until until we see the Doge version of this game, we can't really say that, right? That is true. Doge Flappy 48. Yeah. Uh, yep. That's the next winner. Done. That's, yep. that's the next one. Um, I should get started. We should make that game. Uh, we really should. Yeah, that, that actually wouldn't be too difficult. I think uh, oh, Flappy Forty Eight was uh, it's hosted on GitHub, so I think um, if I'm not mistaken, you can just download the source and just yeah, pull all them, the right? pull all the code from that. Pull all the images from Doge Twenty Forty Eight. Yep. Get some pizza Doges flapping around. I'm going to take this joke one step too far and throw okay. another game into the mix. Where Hedgehoge Flappy Forty Eight? Huh. I. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, let's uh like Chris, um, what have you been playing? <laughs> oh, I'm not done yet, man. Oh, you're not done? Okay. Go, go, go. Oh, go, go. Stiff me like that. Um uh, because I, also... I was trying to get us out out of that out of that awful sort of rabbit hole. <laughs> um I also played uh, a bunch of uh, Ticket to Ride the board game, which 
uh, was really fun because I own it and I haven't gotten to play in a while. And I am really, really, really competitive at it. It is kind of unfair for some of the other people. Um, and so you just beat all your friends. I just beat all my friends <laughs> mercilessly. It was not even close. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, because I'm currently uh, not at my sweet gaming computer, I need, I'm asking the viewers or listeners, whatever, um, if they have suggestions for sweet games that an old MacBook can play. Breakout? Write, uh, write Breakout? Write us at uh, the Red Pages Podcast at gmail.com with suggestions for how to waste Paul's time. <laughs> there we go. Seems great. Chris, what have you been playing? Uh, let's see. Uh, our uh, lead level designer, or one of them at Obsidian, he runs a Greyhawk uh, 3.5 D&D game at work on Tuesdays and Thursdays for like about an hour. So we, uh, I've been playing that. It's been a lot of fun. Um, he's a pretty cruel GM. <laughs> uh, I uh, tried out the uh, the Stanley Parable, um, which is a, which is a pretty quick experience, at least for one option. I ran through a bunch of other options to see what those were like, and then um, I keep thinking there's a third thing that I'm totally spacing on. Um, so I'm gonna not go into it because I can't think what it is. Oh, except for the torment bill, which I was playing. That's what. I, that's, right. what that's what Do I was. Do you have any particularly good stories to come out of that campaign? No, except that, uh, well, I, my, my frickin' horse keeps getting murdered all the time in horrible ways. So I'm surprised any horse will allow themselves to be bought anymore when I, sh- when I show up. And then for some reason, my character is always the one that gets eaten by the monster, and then everyone else has to bail me out of the stomach and cut me out of there. Like last time was like a, like a beaver or something, or some creature that, so rarely shows up, but apparently has a stomach, you know, the swallow attack. So that sucked. But yeah, uh, but other than that, I'm having a great time playing it. So it's a lot of fun. It brings me back to my old, uh, old high school days. Uh, given your, uh, your poor luck with horses, may I suggest uh, a solution that worked really well in one of the campaigns that Paul and I was in, were in grammar, um, which was uh, to get somebody to one way or another, summon something that allowed your entire party to fly by uh, stuffing the entire party into a bag of holding other than the one person <laughs> who's flying with a, uh, with a, 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 with a jar of, yeah, with a jar of bottomless air inside the bag. That's and great. Just, yeah. Uh, we called it, what was it like the armored transport? Vehicle yeah. That's, pretty great. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. We, we yeah, actually, a, I you know, one of the most frustrating things was uh, actually the warhorse was better at combat than my character. Like it had like three attacks and did a did a heck of a lot of damage. So actually, I was really sad when the, the thing died. I was like, God damn it! I was like, I only had like one session, but as soon as we got into a fight, like it was just like massacring everything around it. I'm sitting there with my longsword, going, "This horse is just stealing the show here." But then I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> thank God, this horse is here. Otherwise, I'd be in big trouble." Yeah. Trying to think what we had some good things come out of that flying machine uh, yeah, person. It was also invisible, which was a yeah. plus. Well, it was um, mostly because our uh, was it summoner was super overpowered. He, he he just has a knack for taking any character class. You can give him any set of stats, and he will make the most overpowered character possible from them. Red without even trying, he yeah, like, no. he doesn't try to 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 min max. It just rolls out that way because he tries to figure out the most interesting way to play the character. Uh, one of the nastiest tricks I've heard, and I don't know whether it was a GM or a player doing this, but uh, casting silence on arrows or crossbow bolts and then shooting them at magic users in the party 
so that when they get impaled with them, they actually can't cast any of their spells until they yank the arrows out. Um, so that, that that's always been a lot of fun. Oof. Oh, yeah, I, I don't see. Think we ran into that. That's we did run into some. Brilliant. We ran into some pixies that were trying to uh, hunt us down, I guess, or join the villain. And because we were invisible and flying, uh, I was my character got pulled out of the bag of holding to talk to them because I had the highest charisma. <laughs> um, and I had enough charisma that I was able to convince them that I worked for the villain and I would allow them to join us, but only one of them, whichever came out as the winner in tr- combat to the death. Oh, so they tricky. killed, they, they killed, uh, they killed them all. They, they, they killed each other off when there was only one left. Our uh, our summoner uncloaked, and he was large enough that he could swallow it in one bite. Actually, actually, the best part of the entire thing was that the fairies had DR against their own damage type, so they oh, yes, couldn't just kill each other. Forever. They just they, had to, <laughs> they just exhausted themselves to death. That's crazy. Yeah, they couldn't hit one another. Yeah, I think we just said we're not going to bother with the infinite number of rolls that it would take for these guys to kill one another. <laughs> Speaking of uh, builds that are too powerful, I'm playing a game of Icewind Dale with a friend, and uh, we got to the point where our mages have the level 5 summon spells, so uh, our entire team just sits back, maybe the cleric casts Strength of One, and our uh, fire and water elementals just walk around the entire map, yeah, crushing that everything. Was actually, <laughs> a, uh, that was actually a big problem we had with the Icewind Dales. In fact, we, we quickly discovered that have you, have you played all the way through the first one? Nope. Uh, we uh, just killed the Frost Giants. Okay, well, and I won't give you any spoilers, but uh, there's... We started using techniques to combat that because we noticed a lot of the playthroughs at work, people were doing that because it is so effective. Like, you get a bunch of those elementals together, they all, they're all on the front lines, you send them charging in somewhere, and you just wait it out. And you're like, I'm not seeing any more damage. <laughs> And they don't seem to be swinging at anything anymore, so I think they cleared out that room beyond the fog of war. Let's go in. Hmm. I like, seems uh, like a good trend. Oh, I was gonna say oh. this seems like a good transition point to our to our next segment, where we can continue this discussion. Sure. We uh we looked into the uh, the next room after the frost giants, and I was pleased because it made us rethink our uh, strategies because everything there is. You're, you're getting you're getting pretty close to the end. Oh, uh oh. It's a good thing we've got, uh, Icewind Dale 2 lined up. <laughs> uh, all of the creatures are fire resistant, and up to this point we'd been basing our builds on dealing fire damage. So now we've got to come up with some new ways to approach combat. Alright, well we, we have a, uh, I guess, uh, a reasonable pile of questions here. So, given that we have about 20 minutes left, why don't we jump into listener questions because that's really what the listeners want to hear. That's why they wrote them in, right? So um, uh, the first the first question comes uh, via a forum thread from The Arisen. And he says, here's your my question. This is the only... Um, so uh, before I start, there were a lot of questions that were submitted about the South Park game, uh, which unfortunately we can't for for reasons we cannot get to. This was the only one that was deemed acceptable, and it is only tangentially about South Park. So the Arisen says, "Here is my question: In an age where everyone is so focused on graphics, uh, Matt and Trey, who are the creators of South Park, said that they needed a developer that could developer that could live up to the in quotes crappiness graphically that fans <laughs> from South Park have come to expect. What challenge did being graphically restricted bring?" 
and what benefits do you think were gained from this restriction? So I guess more more generally, he he's interested in sort of the constraints that a lower graphical fidelity bring to making games, and so maybe some of the benefits and what you can get out of maybe not being so focused on the visuals. Well, I think uh, one thing that uh, you learn pretty quickly in game development is because so many of the games you do are based on someone else's franchise, or at least uh, that's the way it is in the in the more um, uh, console-oriented space or the AAA space, you usually have to train yourself to figure out what the aesthetic parameters are for each franchise, whether like whether it's like Star Wars or Aliens, or in this case, South Park. And uh, and, I'm, and while uh, you know Matt and Trey may have been uh, joking about that in some respects, they're pretty dead on in that they have a lot of rules. For for example, even when it comes to animating the characters, for exactly how a character's animation and walk style walk style works in South Park. Like I got to sit in an animation meetings where the animators um, at South Park would would talk with our animators about, here's exactly how a walk is done. Like, here's the angle of the character. Here's the difficulties involved if you want the character to run, because we usually don't have characters running in our show. Um, and they have a whole list of rules for that stuff. So being able to mimic that style for South Park was challenging in some respects, but, I mean, that's basically basically part of the job. I think the, the biggest challenge for us was we actually converted a 3D engine into what looked like a 2D engine, because the engine that, that um, South Park runs on is actually based on the Onyx engine that we used with Dungeon Siege 3, which is nothing like South Park. Um, but we used like a flash overlay to actually be able to create the levels and give distance and perspective with the characters, and then designing levels based on the show's look, so it made you feel like you were playing a show. We actually thought that would be really hard, but then our tech director got a prototype going in about three weeks, and then we just showed it to the South Park guys, and they're like, that looks good. I think we are good to go to you know, build, a, build a prototype and start shopping it around and seeing what publishers are interested. So, yeah, um, it, it was challenging in some respects, but uh, being able to mimic a franchise's art style and even other, you know, other conventions, whether it's writing or characters or presentation, it's just a, a part of the job you sort of learn to deal with. All right. Uh, the next question comes via the web website form from Krellen. And Krellen asks, what was the career path that led to your current job? What's a good start for someone seeking to follow that same path now? Okay, so this is a long answer, but I'll give you the short version first. The short version is just start making games right now. Mm. Like, that is the best career path you can do. And just keep making games. Don't worry about making mistakes. Just finish it. Get it out there. Get critiques. Do another one. Do an improvement on it. Do patch notes. Whatever you need to do. But just keep making games. Because if you want to get, if you want to make a living at it, um, whether it's part of a larger studio or part of uh, you know a smaller indie group, ultimately it's going to be the number of titles that you yourself have worked on and what you've added to that experience. There's and there's no reason why you can't start doing it now because there's so many editors and so many engines out there that you can use to make their own games. It's not it's not uh, it's not it's not as hard as it was say about 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, here's a long answer. Um, so I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons in high school and Champions and Superworld and a whole bunch of other 
RPGs. Uh, I did that for about 10 years, and I was a game master for that, which teaches you a lot about what not to do with your players to make sure that they're actually having a good time and they're not, like, throwing stuff at you across the gaming table. <laughs> um, and all that game master experience and then, like, setting up all those modules and designing all those characters and setting up all those dungeons... I had a huge batch of stuff that I was never going to use again. So I was like, oh, I wonder if I could actually submit these for publication. Um, and I couldn't because Dungeon Magazine sent me a number of rejection letters, many, many, many rejection letters. Uh, I did get some articles published in Dragon. And then finally, I think Hero Games, which was doing the Champions line, they opened up this uh, this Batman some sort of like sub-universe in their titles. And they're like, hey, we need some character books for this and you're always hassling us and you've sent us like about 12 different proposals <laughs> that we all turned down would you be willing to write a character book for this batman style universe i'm like yep so i did that <laughs> and then once uh once i got published once then i was able to get uh more and more opportunities that didn't pay very well but it made me more contacts and then one of those contacts had a lead to the D division at interplay back in California, where the, and that's where Black Isle um, uh, sort of sprouted up. So I went out there for an interview. Uh, during the interview, uh, the head of the division, who was Marco Green at the time, said, hey, you know, um, if we have the Planescape license, so if you were to pitch an idea for a Planescape game, like, how would you start that game? And I'm like, oh, I would start on the death screen. It would be like the game would start, like, you know, you know, most games they just end like you know, when people die. Like what I want to do is like have the game start. You know, once once that death screen's already played out, and then you can see what happens afterwards. You'd be in the mortuary and blah. And I think like Marco Green like phased out while I kept talking <laughs> about it. But uh, he offered me the job, and then I came to work as a junior designer, and then uh, worked at Black Isle for many many years. And then we split off and became Obsidian, and then we worked on um, Star Wars: uh, Knights of Republic Two, The Sith Lords, and Neverwinter Nights Two. The expansions, Alpha Protocol, Fallout, uh, New Vegas, and um, yeah, and we've been pretty, running pretty strong ever since. All right, that was a good, I guess, condensed summary. Uh, Crosanti de Pollo, I think that's what this name is, also submitted via the web form. Uh, if you had to write a character who was a floating, talking body part, what body part would that be? <laughs> Alternatively, if you were already writing a floating, talking butt, what accent would he or she have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and I would say you, probably, you can't choose a skull because you did that one. I, I, I totally get that. So the, for the floating talking butt, I would probably choose a French accent. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea why. I just think it would be funny. And I think while 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 he would talk, he would also shoot confetti confetti out of his quote unquote mouth while he was doing it, and that would entertain me. Greatly. I would say, yay! <laughs> may may we? <laughs> how do you uh, uh, how do you get a headshot on a butt? Ooh. I don't even know. <laughs> uh, although, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll describe that. The, uh, <laughs> let's just say I'll describe that uh, in the Red Pages After Hours podcast. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, that reminds me of that. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever read uh, Garth Ennis's uh, Preacher uh, comic book series, but in it he had a character called Arseface who uh, <laughs> who uh, tried to commit suicide to follow his idol, Kurt Cobain, and he took a shotgun blast to the mouth. But it didn't kill him, it just caved in his mouth. So whenever he showed up in the comic, he would make all those noises, and then they would have the subtitles beneath that that would translate what he was saying. And uh, no, as, as soon as you mentioned the talking butt, that's kind of the first <laughs> character I thought of. So I think Garth Ennis may have already blazed that trail. 
But uh, if I had to choose a body part, it'd probably be a hand because I think I could. It'd be fun to do the uh, the uh, sort of like uh, fold the thumb beneath the index finger and then do the uh, the talking mouth. But that might be a South Park uh, influence going on there. Yeah, it's a lot of Adam's family in that too. I think. Yep. Yes. And also right, that, uh, uh, that 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 one hand that was in the Evil Dead was also uh, ah, had a lot, had a lot oh, of personality right. just being just for, just for being a hand. Yeah. All right, uh, Ilya Feldstein. Wow, that's a uh, cool. Writes uh, via web form. How did you come up with the Mort character, and who owns the right to him? Is there a chance we can see him in future in Exile games? Uh, so Mort was based on these floating encyclopedias in D&D's Planescape setting, which are called Mimirs. And what they are is they're basically floating skulls that uh, contain a bunch of knowledge. So you can like, you know, can look them up like they're, they're basically your, your floating Google platforms. And when we were doing the Planescape game, we're like, hey, what kind of companions should we have? And Mimirs were so... Um, so much a part of the setting. We're like, oh, I wonder if you could have a, a mirror as a companion. But then we're like, well, mirrors actually aren't supposed to have a lot of personality. So why don't we have a a quote unquote mirror that's actually pretending to be one for his own agendas? Bum bum bum. <laughs> and then um, and then we just worked it off of there. We're like, yeah, we'll get some personality, add a little bit of levity to the game because it's it's pretty dark. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's how he came about. And then, uh, as we narrow, like, uh, narrowed down a lot of the locations and areas in the game, we found a good home for him, um, uh, on one of the outer planes. And, uh, we thought that it worked pretty well for hooking into the, the main character's backstory. Uh, we, in exile, uh, on, uh, torment tides of Numenera though, they don't actually have rights to any of the characters in the first uh, Planescape Torment game, so uh, you won't you won't see like Mort or Fall from Grace or Anna in the in the in the in the, in the, uh, the spiritual successor. Those, those are those are uh, I believe either owned by Interplay or owned by Hasbro. The, the Planescape setting is definitely owned by Hasbro, and I, I suspect that all those Planescape characters from the first game are all sort of under Interplay's umbrella, unfortunately. Well. Um... I don't know if you know this, but he he does sort of live on in tribute, I think, uh, because there is a wisecracking floating talking skull in Diablo three, uh, the new expansion. Yeah. Also, also in the uh, the Jim Butcher book series, the Dresden Files. I love <laughs> the skull in the Jim Butcher series, and you know what else I love about uh, the Dresden Files is the potion crafting. Mm, like yeah. every time they. They make a potion of like not getting note. All, all those sort of like mundane, real world ingredients they use to make up those potions are just fascinating to read. And I think if uh, like if I ever had a chance to do a Dresden Files game, I would love just to be a, just to be involved with the crafting system because I just think it's so interesting and clever the way he uh, he turns those real world objects into more uh, more magical applications. Mm-hmm. You hear it. You you heard it here first. Uh, Dresden Files, the video game. Yep, I, hot I, scoop uh, coming coming <laughs> from Red Pages podcast. I, I I would totally do that. All right, uh, Leviathan submitted a question to me via Battle.net message. Uh, asks if you were to make a new Fallout game with complete creative freedom, what sort of new systems or directions would you be interested in exploring within that setting? That is a good question. Uh, so immediately, uh, you wouldn't have to be a human character. Like you could be a super mutant or a ghoul or 
I would like to see a spectrum of races that aren't solely human. I think that would add a lot to the experience. And we wanted to do that with the, uh, the interplay version of fallout three, but obviously that wasn't meant to be anyway. So that, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is uh, I'd like to play around with the idea that the bosses in the game or whoever your principal antagonists are, that they're more of an independent system that roams around the world. And what I mean by that is rather than having like the bosses confined to one location and then they have special events that are triggered by, you know, quest uh, completions and it basically feels pretty linear and you only hit them at certain choke points. I'd actually have, protagonists, I'm sorry, antagonists that were more like um, system mechanics where like they had their sort of like own AI states and own agendas and depending on where the player traveled in the world or how they affected trade or what, you know, tribes they got on their side or how much faction, faction reputation they got, that would cause changes in that other player character party or that other antagonist and then they would do things elsewhere in the world. So it felt a little bit more free-flowing than I think a lot of adversaries and uh, previous Fallout games tend to be. I think it would be a lot more fun to explore a system like that. Um, what else? Uh, so also in the in the original Van Buren uh, Fallout 3 game, we were also playing around with the idea that once you left the first area of the game, you actually didn't realize you were carrying a disease with you. So you actually are carrying the new plague that wiped out a good portion of um, the pre-apocalypse years, or at least was a big problem in the pre-apocalypse years. So you actually bring that back to the world, but you know, but it takes a while for it to sink in. The communities are being cut off, people are dying, all these symptoms are showing up. But if you actually examine your path along the world map, you suddenly see that, hey, wait a minute, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, subject zero here. Holy crap. And then uh, we thought it'd be interesting that like, hey, depending on what caravan routes you set up or what new communities you discover or what tribals you ally with each other, or what communities that that actually can cause the infection to spread in new ways. So then the world map becomes sort of like this strategy game where you have to figure out how to quarantine certain sections of the world while maintaining your allies and try and find a cure in time to actually cure all these people. So we thought that would be an interesting mechanic to do. Um, and there was one other have, thing. Have you ever played uh, Slouching Towards Bedlam? No. That is a an, it's an interactive fiction text text game with uh, that. I'm writing uh, it down with, right now. With I mean, it's it's on a much smaller scale. Uh, it's but that that is sort of a, a conceit of the game. Uh, and I think that? it won the 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 Zizzy Award or one of the Zizzy Awards the year it came out for best interactive fiction or something like that. And it's called uh, Slouching Towards Bedlam. Yes, or Bethlehem. like okay. the uh, nope nope Slouching Towards Bedlam. You're in a Bedlam. you're like a doctor in a uh, insane asylum, and. Uh, yeah, they're, they're shenanigans. I like shenanigans. Anyway, yeah, I guess the next question. Uh, Forte SP. Left 4 Dead, oh, Dead yes. has uh, a similar thing. Yeah, Left 4 Dead has a similar thing if you read the the, the comic book that they put out. Yeah. Uh, Forte SP asks uh, via Steam, uh, what is your favorite color? Blue. All right. Uh, Dr. And Van on, and, 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 and on Wii. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Van Von Mojo uh, submitted via IRC uh, that she adores Chris Avalone. Aw, 
I adore uh, you too. And that she that she wishes she could play your South Park game, uh, but she has made a vow to not play any games this year that uh, do not allow you to select a male or female protagonist that only that uh, force you into a gender. Uh, I completely so, sympathize with her, and I wish it had been our decision. Yeah. But uh, I guess she will be playing it uh, probably next year when her New Year's resolution is up. <laughs> so those were all of the those were all of the uh, submitted questions that we were allowed to ask. I'm glad we got through with them. Oh, uh, and what uh, from from our Twitter? Uh, what is your favorite cheese? Uh, I, it is pepper jack. Really, mm. that is a good choice. Pepper jack is a good sandwich cheese. All right. Um, try to see how much time we have. We have time for a couple more, I think. Um, uh, Gord, you've played the most of his of, uh, of of Chris here's games. Do you have anything you would like to ask because you are the most familiar? Dun 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 dun. <laughs> you were. If not, I can just ask something about narrative and mm-hmm. such. You were the so. level designer on Icewind Dale. I was a level designer. Yes. What was your favorite level? Which one turned out the best? Do you think? Um, in Icewind Dale one, Icewind Dale two, or Heart of Winter. Uh, Icewind Dale 1. Hmm. Um, let's see. I mostly worked on, uh, uh let's see. You know what? I'm, I, you know, I'm actually going to Shanghai the question because the most level design work I did was for, uh, Targos and Icewind Dale 2. And that was still one of my, fun, my favorite level design experiences. What happened was the level designer, had set up the maps for the area and then like he quit, I think three weeks into production. So I got it. So basically I had a, I think I make a 15 page document about things that could happen there. And I had the maps and then I was just allowed to have fun, which for Icewind Dale too, I think, you know, and we, if you have, if, if you were jumping from one to two, you notice there's a big tone shift and I think it's because we were under the crunch so bad for that game. I think the original release date was like, hey, we have to get this out in like five or six months, which for computer development cycles is almost impossible. But for some reason, that gives you like an incredible adrenaline spike. So everyone just grabbed levels and started designing quests and putting fun things in. They just thought it would be fun. <laughs> so it's a little bit more lighthearted in some respects. So working on Targos is a lot of fun because... Uh, I was able to make fun of a lot of fetch quests that I think are part of other games. Like, you know, guards will ask you to like, go get a blanket, a potion of healing from so-and-so. And then later on you find out that it's like a hazing thing from all the mercenary companies when they first show up, like they're asked to go get healing potions. <laughs> and then you can like laugh about it with the mercenary guys and go, wow, <laughs> that does kind of suck. And then like <laughs> you can, you can joke about carrying around quest items too long. Just, you know, people in RPGs tend to like, if they find anything special, they'll hold on to it forever in case it's ever gets a chance to be used anywhere in the game. So like, being able to have some fun with that and then also throw in some serious moments too, I think was just, uh, I don't know. I, I just enjoyed working on Targos. It was a lot of fun. All of my characters' uh, inventories were full of skulls. Well, have you played uh, Legend of Grimrock? <laughs> yes, uh, a little bit. Did you play, uh, did you play with a Minotaur race? Nope. So the Minotaur race has a feat in Legend of Grimrock where the more skulls you create, uh, you, you gather, the more damage you do. Ooh. And I thought that was great. I'm like, oh wow! Suddenly they made skulls valuable, but only for this one, for only for this one race. That's kind of cool. I've got to do that. All right. Um, 
How how are you how are you looking on time? How much how much time do you have left, Chris? Uh, I can uh, spend about another five minutes, and then I probably will have to vanish off into the ether. All right, I will ask one last question, and then we can sign out and, and tie it up. So, um, I guess because you you come at games from more of a writing, sort of, I, w- I don't want to say English, but like sort of a, a non-game place when when you started, uh, much more storytelling. How do you how do you deal with? I don't want to. I don't want to say ludo narrative dissonance because that's a <laughs> wow. That was that was, <laughs> that was heavy. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to say that because apparently that's like a dirty word these days. But I was. Uh, I want to know how how do how do you deal with when you're trying to design something and you are being fought by the tools of implementation. And maybe this never comes through when a person's playing it. You solve the problem, but sort of how do you? How do you manage when you have this vision and you sort of can't get it into the the piece of art that you are trying to create? Uh, you change the vision. Uh, in fact, and the, and the sooner you do it, the better, because if the tool set in the engine isn't working for your vision or can't do the things that you believe are necessary, then you need to reevaluate what you're doing, because there is nothing that's a huger waste of time than trying to force an engine to do something it's not supposed to do. And I think the experience will suffer as a result. And uh, I'll, I'll use an example. Like the, the last game that taught me this was uh, Knights of the Republic 2. Like it taught me that at no point should we ever had cutscenes that, that were in engine. Like the engine was not designed to properly set up cutscenes like that and get the timing down right. So even though it may have felt very Star Warsy to show these cutaways and showing foreshadowing, the engine was not meant to do that. And that's why Knights of the Republic 1 only did that once, I think, throughout the entire game. But, you know, I really wanted to make it happen. I thought we'd get the tool set to work. I thought we'd get the, the programming down to make it happen, and it never fully materialized. And it would have been better had I simply taken a step back and go, you know what, from a design perspective, I may have all these ideas and hopes and dreams, but if I can't actually have the tools to make it happen, I need to reevaluate what, what I'm doing. So, all right. so I, guess the, I guess the short answer is, Take a step back, reevaluate, and change your vision. It's interesting because that's that's so often, especially in writing, not a thing that you that you do because you know by the nature of writing, if you can imagine it, you can write it down and you can keep editing it until it's the way you want or at least close. It's it's, it's interesting to think about sort of the compromises that the medium makes us. I don't know. That's yeah, well, I no, no, I, I totally agree. Actually, uh, so one of the things for uh, for Fallout New Vegas and the DLCs is because we had such a strict word budget, and even, even regardless of the word budget, we came in under that. Um, we we made more of an effort to see what stories we could tell without words, and the Fallout games are perfect for that because if you have a thousand different placeable objects and items. And you and the ability to, sh- to to shape the world like you can with a gek, it's really easy actually to create visual stories of what happened oh, in a yeah. location that requires no conversations whatsoever. Like you put a piece of graffiti in the right place that signifies a certain faction or character, a banner, a certain campsite set up a certain way, or a murder scene. 
the player can just look over a scene and immediately see what the story that took place there was. And the more you can do that, I think better serves both the developer and the game player and sort of allows them to, to fill in the spaces between where, where, where normally you would just give a bunch of exposition. It's much better to try and find a way around that and just try and describe it visually. Yeah, I think environmental storytelling, especially in a game, like you said, like Fallout, where you have just those open environments really lends themselves to that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I guess the last question I could ask, but I but I won't expect you to answer is uh what is game? <laughs> what is game? <laughs> what is ga- how does game mean? Uh what, how does I, how does meaning derive from game? You don't need to I answer, I, I, I guess I'd probably just say that game is intended to be fun and entertaining on all sides and once it starts deviating from that it is no longer a game. So like when you're going to Dear Esther for example you might take a step back and go, you know what, this isn't necessarily a game anymore. There's no real fun challenge to it. You're mostly just having a, an experience that you're walking through, which is something quite different than I would consider definition for a game. It's a, it's a walking simulator. <laughs> what is? And don't get me wrong, like I, I, I loved Dear yeah. Esther, and I thought the level design was great, and there were certainly were some emotional payoffs that hit me really hard just with the visuals. Um, so like, don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, speaking bad about that game. It's just, uh, it's not, it's not a game, obviously. Right. So. All right. So, uh, I, I guess we're reaching the end of our time here. So I want to say thank you, uh, Chris, for, co- uh, coming on the show, for giving us your, your time and well, hey, answering well, the questions of our, uh, adoring fans. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you should feel, feel free to come back and join us again in the future. I would love would like. to. Gord. If people wanted to get in t- contact with us, how would they do that? They would first acquire a computer. They would then connect it to the Internet. They would then go to redpagespodcast.com or Facebook slash redpagespodcast or Twitter at redpagespodcast or send an email to theredpagespodcast at gmail.com. I would say if you would like to help out the podcast because you enjoy listening to us, and you want to hear us do more podcasts, uh, what you should do is, this week, share this podcast with one person that you think would really, really enjoy it. Uh, it could be your best friend, or your dog, or your artisanal cheese salesman, or uh, maybe your mom, or your mom's dog, or your mom's artisanal cheese salesman. Well, any of these people would be appropriate to share the podcast with. We we would very much appreciate it uh, if you would if you would tell other people about us. I'm going and to share sure it with that thing. Oh, yeah. this week I'm going to share it with Paul. Hey, Paul, oh, you should listen to the Red Pages uh, podcast. I will. That sounds like a great idea. Excellent. Also, I'm See, going to go. That and, easy. I'm going to go rate us on iTunes because ratings are good. Yes. All right. We have reached the end. So uh, I have been Justin. I've been Gord. I've been Paul. And I have been Chris. And uh, this has been the Red Pages podcast. I like, uh, I like a game where I can play a character that can just talk their way out of everything. So That is a lot of the options, yes. I almost wish that there had been a little bit more combat, a little more dungeon exploration. I think if I had a chance to do it again, I'd probably balance it out a little bit more. But I certainly did enjoy working on it, I have to confess.